This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was 150 years ago in a location just over the Canadian border in the US that a young teacher and a schoolgirl would come to be at the centre of a tragic story, although the two had never known each other. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called The French Monster. A teacher and a student went missing. What happened to them? For this story, we go back to the early 1870s, to a small village called St. Albans in Vermont. Vermont is a state in the northeastern part of the US, which borders Canada. Today, St. Albans is a city which is roughly just over an hour's drive from Montreal, Canada. It was here in the small village of St. Albans where George Ball lived with his wife and eight children. Two of the children died in infancy and then their mother died, leaving George to raise the remaining six children. The three sons later moved to California, leaving George with his three daughters, one of whom was named Marietta. When she was about 17, Marietta was on her way home just after dark when a man came out of the shadows and accosted her. But Marietta somehow managed to get away and ran home. She couldn't identify the man and the incident wasn't investigated. Although Marietta was learning to become a dressmaker, her life took another path when she was offered a position as a schoolmistress at the St. Albans schoolhouse. She accepted the job which had been offered to her by a farmer named Wanton Abel. He also offered for her to take up lodgings at his farm, to which she agreed. The schoolhouse was located in a place called East Hill and the Abel's farm was not far from there. So each day, Marietta would walk to school, and she became a very popular teacher among her pupils. It was common for people to see her on her daily walk to school, and she would say good morning to the people whose farm properties she passed. Sometimes the children from her school would even walk with her. During the week, she lived with the Abel's, However, on the weekends, she would sometimes go and stay with a friend named Clara Page, who lived about a mile from the schoolhouse. So, on a Friday, she would take some weekend belongings with her and walk to Clara's farm after school was dismissed. So, on the day of Friday, July 24th, 1874, Marietta walked to Clara's house after school. Although Clara had expected Marietta that afternoon. She wasn't particularly concerned when she didn't arrive and just figured she had made other plans and that she'd probably see her on the Saturday. But by late Saturday afternoon, Clara still hadn't heard from Marietta. It was then that she recalled something that had happened the previous weekend. Marietta had spent the weekend with Clara and had planned to walk to school on the Monday morning, but it was raining. So Clara drove her to school in their carriage. On the way there, 
they saw a man walking through the farm fields, which seemed quite unusual. But when he then disappeared, they thought he may be hiding somewhere waiting for them. Clara dropped Marietta off at school and then sent for her husband to come and meet her at the school as she didn't want to go back home on her own. So when Marietta didn't arrive, Clara thought back to this incident and became concerned for her friend. She took the carriage to a friend's farm, which was on the route, who also knew Marietta. They said they did recall seeing her walking by on the Friday afternoon, as she normally did. Clara then raised the alarm with her husband, who approached some local men to help in a search for her. The men began searching some woods in the area between the school and Clara's house. By that time, it was dark, and they carried lanterns as they separated and searched through the bushes. The men then stumbled across something very peculiar on the ground. It appeared to be a mask made out of a piece of carpet and had holes cut out for the eyes and a mouth. Two pieces of carpet had been sewn together on both sides with birch twigs. Then, at about 1am in the morning, one of the men, Frank Harris, cried out and the others ran over to him, only to find a devastating scene. It was Marietta. She was laying on her back with her arms by her side. Her skirts were torn and her overshirt was pulled up over her face. A few of the men ran back to the village to alert the authorities. When they arrived, Marietta was placed in a wagon and taken to Clara's house. A coroner and two doctors arrived at the farm and conducted an autopsy. It was determined that Marietta had been raped and then killed by a blunt object, possibly a rock. Her skull was broken and caved in on one side and she had numerous bruises and scratches over her body. Once the news of Marietta's murder filtered through the small village, it sent an intense fear through the community, and not only because of the teacher's murder, but also because only a week earlier, another man had been found murdered as well. The first person to come under suspicion was Frank Harris, the man who had first found her body. It was a time of racial prejudice, and Harris was a black man. So he was arrested and confined to the St. Albans Jail. His house was vandalised, and so it appears the local townspeople were convinced that he was the murderer. However, he had an alibi and was released the next day without charge. Possibly fearing a lynching, he left the village. The location where Marietta was found was searched more thoroughly and some of her belongings were found, including a ribbon from her hair. But more importantly, her watch was also found, and it was noted that the watch was smashed, and the time showed 4.20pm. So it was concluded that this had been the time of her death, which seemed to match the time she would have been walking after school on her way to Clara's house. They also found a large stone with blood on it, which was deemed to be the murder weapon. A number of other people also came under suspicion, but most of these were transients 
who travelled from village to village looking for work. The local people became increasingly paranoid of these outsiders and it was common during this time for these such people to simply be in the wrong place at the wrong time and as a result they became accused of various crimes. The local sawmill in the village was one place which attracted these transient workers and the authorities began looking into the mill workers. With the Canadian border being so close by, it was common for French Canadians to travel south into the US looking for work and it was noted that one of these men at the mill had scratches on his face. When questioned, he said he got the scratches from berry picking and another man verified where he said he had been at the time of the murder. Although many other suspects were questioned, all were released due to lack of evidence. However, the authorities did have one lead which was more credible. It was known that Marietta had once had a run-in with a particular family after she disciplined their child at school. The family were also French. However, this too was discounted. Another man also came under suspicion as he had previously shown an interest in Marietta, but she had rejected him. So the authorities surmised that he couldn't handle the rejection and so murdered her, but he too had an alibi. And surprisingly, Wanton Abel also came under suspicion. As you will recall, he was the owner of the house where Marietta lived and the same man who had offered her the teaching position. He knew her routine of walking to Clara's house each Friday afternoon. He said that he had been working in one of his fields that afternoon and had fallen asleep due to the heat. No one could confirm this, but ultimately he too was released due to lack of evidence. As the months passed by, without Marietta's killer being found, you can imagine how the local people began turning on one another more and more. It seemed that anyone could come under suspicion for the most minor of reasons. Then the one-year anniversary of Marietta's murder arrived and a group of townsfolk gathered near the site where she was murdered. The local reverend delivered a sermon and the mourners then walked over to where she was found laying flowers and wreaths. Then two weeks later, a monument was erected at the site, which read, Marietta N. Ball, murdered July 24th, 1874, aged 20 years. Passing along this highway from the school which she was teaching, it is supposed that she was assailed by a masked villain from an ambuscade and then taken to a thicket midway between the road and this spot and killed by blows on her head. Her body was then taken here, laid out, and was found at 1 o'clock a.m. July 26th. Marietta's father continued to mourn for his lost daughter, and eventually the family moved, never to return to St. Albans. Now the word ambuscade that you heard used on her monument is very interesting in itself. Its meaning is a trap in which concealed persons lie in wait to attack by surprise. Now I had never heard this word, although I can see that it comes from the word ambush. 
Here is how this word came about. Ambuscade derives from the Middle French word embuscade, a modification of an old Italian word formed by combining the prefix in and the Latin noun bosco, meaning forest. This is appropriate since many such surprise attacks have involved the attacking force hiding out in and emerging from a wooded area. When they had searched the area where Marietta was found, they found one of these ambuscades. So this shows it was a premeditated attack. So he knew her route and constructed the hideout to conceal himself. Now we skip forward to about three months after the one-year anniversary of Marietta's death. The people of St Albans were reading their local newspaper and came across a story of the murder of a 17-year-old girl in the neighbouring state of New Hampshire. Josie Langmaid had been walking to school near a place called Suncook, New Hampshire. She failed to reach school and sadly her lifeless body was discovered 12 hours later in the woods near a place called Giles Swamp. She had been sexually assaulted, bludgeoned to death and also so tragically her head was missing. Her dress had been torn and arranged over her as a kind of shroud. As they had found her during the night, it was decided that they would return the next morning in the daylight to look for her head. Her body was taken to her house and laid down on her own bed. The next day, a search party found a number of items near the murder scene. First, they found a wooden club that was broken in two pieces and had blood on it. Nearby, they found Josie's school books and also some blue cloth. When the cloth was inspected, the sight was too gruesome for words. It was Josie's head. Her face had the imprint of what appeared to be a boot, so it was surmised the killer had held her head down with his boot while decapitating her. Josie's school was called the Pembroke Academy and was about a mile from her home, and most days she would walk to school with her friend Leela Fowler. It was a Monday morning, and Leela was waiting for Josie in their usual meeting place, but she never arrived. Josie was then found 12 hours later. Those who came under suspicion were transients, and people at the time that they referred to as tramps. There was also only one black man who lived in the area, and he too was arrested just for being black, but was later released. But the person who was a strong suspect was a 22-year-old man named William Drew. He was described as a layabout and had lived near the crime scene. There had been a report that he had an interest in Josie, but that she had rejected him. He was taken into custody, but ultimately released as he had an alibi. Josie's funeral took place at her own house and they had an open casket. Her head had been stitched back to her body. She was presented for viewing with a garland of flowers wrapped around her neck. Following a more thorough search of the murder scene, some more of Josie's belongings were found. A black comb, a part of her belt buckle and two hairpins. However, still missing was her wallet and a black rubber ring that she wore. 
When reading the details of Josie's murder, some of the St Albans townsfolk were struck by the similarities between her murder and Marietta's murder. The authorities began looking over the details of Marietta's murder again and the suspects at the time, and one in particular struck them as interesting. You will recall they interviewed one of the mill workers who had scratches on his face. It was known to the authorities that the man had left St Albans after being interviewed and released due to lack of evidence. But the alarm bells began ringing when they found out that the town he had moved to was the same town where the young Josie Langmaid had been found murdered. The authorities at St Albans then dispatched a letter to the town folk of Suncook, which read as follows. Gents, I have thought best to write to you after hearing of the terrible affair which has occurred in your midst. One year ago, on the 24th day of July, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, as Miss Ball was walking from the schoolhouse to her house, she was murdered in a small piece of woods. Among the persons suspected, there was one by the name of Blank. He was strongly suspected and was examined, but I was not satisfied. Should you have occasion to investigate him, I should be glad to know the result. The letter was received by a local government official, and it turns out that he was also the father of Leela, Josie's friend. And even more astonishing, he knew the man that they were referring to, as he had hired him to thresh the rye on his own farm. Therefore, it was highly likely he would have seen the two girls while he was working at the farm. The official forwarded the letter to the investigators, who, as it turns out, had already questioned the man. So they questioned him again a second time, and were satisfied with his explanation of his whereabouts on the day. They still considered William Drew as the prime suspect, and the man was free to go. It was then that an experienced investigator from Boston took over Josie's case. After reviewing the investigation to date, he decided to look into the same man from St Albans. Some of his clothing and belongings were taken and sent away for analysis, including a coat spotted with blood, a knife, a razor and his boots. The investigator's hunch proved correct as the blood on his coat was confirmed to be human and even more damning, his boot matched the mark on Josie's face. But even more alarming was evidence provided by Leela's own brother, who said he had been working with the man on the farm when Leela came home from school. The brother recalled that the man asked who she was, where she went to school and other questions about her. So it appeared that perhaps Leela had been the intended victim, but due to reasons unknown, it was Josie who ultimately became the target. With all the evidence that was gathered, the man was arrested and went to trial. It was during the trial that the man's past fully came to light. The man was born about 50 miles from Montreal, Canada, and went on to marry and have five children. He was known to be abusive and violent towards his wife and children. His first run-in with the law came when he sexually assaulted 
his sister-in-law, for which he was arrested. However, he escaped and then crossed the border into Vermont in the U.S. and found his way to the village of St. Albans. You will recall that Marietta had been accosted by a man but got away, and this may well have been the same man as he was in the area at the time. He then returned back to Canada, wanting revenge for being jailed for the assault. There he set fire to a barn owned by the man who had arrested him and tried to sexually assault his sister, but she managed to flee. He then returned to St. Albans doing farm jobs and became one of the men questioned in Marietta's murder. As he mentioned, he explained the scratches on his face and others provided him with an alibi. He then moved to Suncook, New Hampshire, and Josie was murdered seven months later. It was while the man was in custody that new evidence came to light regarding Marietta's murder. A man named John Reel had employed the accused on his farm and recalled his interest in Marietta, who he described as good enough to hug. John's daughter attended the school where Marietta taught, and the man had asked the girl where the teacher went on the weekends and was told she went to Clara's house. The man went on trial for the murder of Josie. He was taken to the crime scene with the jurors, and it was noted that he showed no emotion at all. There were a number of witnesses who testified that they had seen the man on the day of the murder, and conversely, there were those who provided an alibi for him, therefore contradicting the other witnesses. As he was French, there were other French Canadians in the town who sympathised with him, believing it was a witch hunt and that he was innocent. So the testimony of the witnesses was unreliable on both sides. One of the other witnesses at the trial was the man's first victim in Canada, his sister-in-law, whom he had assaulted and then fled into Vermont. She had travelled especially from Canada to present her testimony. The court was also presented with the physical evidence of Josie's murder, the blood-stained clothes, the knife, the boot print on her face. The defence attempted to cast doubt on the evidence, but it didn't make any impact. The jury deliberated, and it wasn't very long until they returned a verdict of guilty. It was the physical evidence that ultimately sealed the man's fate. With the witness evidence being so contradictory, the jury could not pronounce him guilty on that basis. So, the items that had been found in his house proved crucial. The judge then announced the sentence as follows. As a servant of the law, the court decrees that you be imprisoned in the state prison at Concord until the 19th day of January in the year of our Lord, 1877, and on that day, between the hours of 10 in the afternoon and 2 in the afternoon, you be hanged from the neck until dead. And pardon me to say that all the days to come to you in this life must be full of sorrow. The lead investigator in Marietta's murder travelled from St. Albans to attend the trial. Following the man's conviction, he stated, The consequence was that he escaped. We wanted to lynch him then, 
and so it would have been a lucky thing for this other unfortunate girl, Josie Langmaid, if we had only hung him up on a tree to feed the crows and buzzards. Following the man's conviction and sentencing to death, the court saw no reason to try him for Marietta's murder. Her father, George, had long suspected Frank Harris, the black man who had found her body. George was then living in California and followed the man's trial. By that time, he was in poor health, but hung on until he finally received news of the guilty verdict. He then passed away six days later. Although the man was never tried for Marietta's death, I really think her father George was ready to die knowing that it was highly likely the man also killed Marietta. George was then at peace that his daughter's killer would be hung and this allowed him to pass away in peace. However, even though George may have thought it was the end of the story, it wasn't. Of course, the man's defence made an appeal on the grounds that the lady from Canada he had assaulted should not have been permitted to testify, as this had nothing to do with Josie's murder. They won the appeal, and there was a second trial, which ultimately convicted him a second time. Then it was the evening before the man's hanging. He was permitted a meeting with two priests and spoke with them in French. Shortly after, he fell to the ground, sobbing in front of the warden, saying, I kill girl, I kill two girl, too bad, too bad. During his weeping, he finally admitted to killing Josie and Marietta as well. He confesses to the crime and even draws a map for the warden of the crime scene and then proceeds to go into detail about the crimes. He described how he had been watching Marietta for weeks and had found out that she walked to her friend Clara's house every Friday. On that particular Friday, he slipped away from work, planning to follow Marietta. Previously, he had constructed a spot in the bushes to conceal himself. It was here that he hid, and when he saw her, he put on the mask he had made from the carpet and jumped out of the bushes. She saw him and ran, but he was able to catch her. He then describes the details of the murder, which I won't go into. But there was one final piece of evidence that proved his guilt beyond doubt. The man told the warden where he had hidden Josie's wallet and ring, and the investigators found them exactly where he had indicated. The next morning, the execution was put into motion. He was led to the gallows with the detective from St. Albans and Josie's father in attendance. The warrant was read as follows. And now, blank. In accordance with the command, I proceed to execute the sentence of death by hanging you from the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. Then the man's execution was enacted. However, no one wanted to claim his body afterwards. He had been a Catholic and was excommunicated after attacking the lady in Canada and therefore was refused burial in the Catholic cemetery. Instead, he was interred in a pauper's grave in another cemetery. A monument was erected for Josie on the site where she was found, and it's quite a tall monument. On the front is an inscription with the words, 
death lies on her like an untimely frost upon the sweetest flower of all the field. On the reverse side of the monument are the words that describe where her head was found. Body found 90 feet north at Stone Hub, head found 82 rods north at a Stone Hub. Now this monument is very interesting to me because it still stands today and even more fascinating is that it's across the street from a school called the Three Rivers School. There are a number of recent photos of it, which I will put into our Facebook group. It can be seen next to a road, but I read that people living in the area go past it all the time, but very few people actually know about its history and significance. And also, a stone pillar was erected in the location where her head was found, which I also have a photo of. Marietta had a quite elaborate headstone which really stood out compared to the grave sites. But it was sad to hear that it has been neglected over the years and is now in a very poor state. And I think this may be because after her murder, her father and sisters moved to California and so it seems over time that she was forgotten. Both of the girls can be found on the Find a Grave website. Now you may recall that I've spoken about this before where I've been able to find the memorials of some of the people who have died in the stories on the podcast. You can write a message for them and I've written a message for both of the girls, Marietta and Josie, and you can leave a message too if you wish. So just type in findagrave.com. So here are my thoughts about this story. I found it really interesting, the people who were suspected of the crimes, which were usually the outsiders, the tramps as they called them, and also as the Canadian border was so close by, there were many French Canadians who travelled there looking for work. I read that there was particularly racism towards the French, and in fact the perpetrator, who was French Canadian, was referred to in the newspapers at the time as the French monster hence the name of this episode. And this story also shows how it would have been so easy to convict and hang the wrong person. And in fact, we know that this had happened to many black people in the past. And even today, there is an alarming number of wrong convictions, even with the technology that we have available today. So back in those times, I would imagine there would have been a lot more. And here is another fascinating aspect to this story. In the year 1930, about 50 years after the man's execution, a ballad was written about the murder of Josie Langmaid. It was written by a lady named Mabel Wilson Tatro. She then recorded the song onto an old wax cylinder, which was the technology available at the time. It was then re-recorded 30 years later onto a reel. The audio you will now hear is that recording and you will hear the first version which is very scratchy and then you will hear the re-recorded version. Take a listen. Come on, young people, now draw near. 
Attend a while and you shall hear how a young person of renown was murdered in fair sun town. It was in the morning, very cool, when Josie started for her school. And many the time that road she'd passed, but little thought she it would be her last. It was at the foot of Pembroke Street, La Paisley ambushed with a stick. Long time ago, his plans were laid to take the life of this fair maid. The mother watched with eager care, hoping her mouth daughter would appear. But when the shades of night drew near, her darling child did not appear. The weeping father and the son, all through the woods their search begun, and found at last, to their surprise, the murdered child before their eyes. Her head was from her body torn, her clothes were all a crimson gore, and on her body marks did show some skillful hand had dealt the blow. This monster now so deep in crime, he thought the people's eyes to blind, but found at last to his mistake they had him fast behind the grave. It was a conquered he was tried until the last his crime denied. But he was found to guilty be, and the judge said, let say, death is your plea. And now, LePage, your work is done, and you, like Ephios, must be hung. For we must all examples make till crime shall cease in the granite state. Isn't that just amazing? I just loved researching this story, as history absolutely fascinates me. And considering it was so long ago, there are still many great black and white photos, which I'll put into the Facebook group, including a photo of Josie, which was taken from her high school yearbook. And this story also made me think that we should pay attention to monuments which are not in cemeteries, but located in places where you wouldn't expect to see a monument. Such monuments must have a story behind them, and this certainly was the case here. So in the future, any time I see one, I am definitely going to have a look at it. So this was a very sad story, but I actually learned quite a few things from this story. So now, here is a preview of the next episode. It's called Axe to Grind. The missionaries were doing their life's work of serving others. What happened? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from Socrates. Employ your time in improving yourself by other men's writings, so that you shall gain easily what others have laboured hard for. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.